Let us pray. Lord, we come before you now and ask that your word would be used mightily in our midst, that you would by your spirit speak to us, and that we would hear the voice of Christ, that we would see him lifted up, and that you would be drawing us to him, O Lord. We thank you and praise you this morning that we do have your word and that we are, able, are, we are able to gather here this morning to hear it preached. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us and use the sermon this morning to encourage us, to instruct us, to reprove us, and to enable us to go forth from this place as the people of God, equipped for every good work. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 35 through 45 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And the people were coming to him from every quarter. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. You remember that we're continuing um, in our series here to look at the real Jesus Um, I want to continue to lay this out to you, and I want to continue to get you to think about this and to process this. We make a Jesus for ourselves, And that's why we need to constantly be confronted with the real Jesus. Because the Jesus that we make is not a Jesus that can confront us. It's not a Jesus that can rebuke us. It's not a Jesus that can help us. It's not a Jesus who can really heal us. We have to keep coming back and dealing with the real Jesus. And we have to be honest with ourselves that we don't look at the real Jesus the way the Scriptures do. And part of the reason why is because, quite frankly, as men and women and as sinners, Jesus makes us mad. Jesus does not operate on our terms. Jesus does not always do things the way we would do it. He sometimes is incredibly frustrating to us. See, if you can't come to terms with that, then you're not really dealing with the real Jesus and you're not being honest with yourself about who you are. Because Jesus comes and exposes us for who we are, not so that we can be exposed, but so that He might gather us in that He might comfort us, 
But we must come to Him on His terms. We must deal with Him as He would have us deal with Him. And the reason why I'm pointing that out is because as we come into this passage right now, we're going to find exactly this reality going on in the king's ministry, in Jesus' ministry. His ways are sometimes confounding, even to his followers. But they are instructive. And if we listen this morning, I think we'll find real help, not only in seeing all that Jesus is for us, but in finding practical ways that we might serve him as his people without growing weary and frustrated. So let's look at these various um, verses. And I'd like us to look at it through this kind of of, uh, lens. The first thing I want us to look at is the king's practice. And I want us to look at what Jesus does, how he lives his life. Look at what happens here. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, the interesting thing is we, we, we've skipped over some verses, but not because we're skipping over the topic. It's just that all of that kind of is drawing together. Some of your translations either will just have this huge, long section starting back up right after he calls the disciples, moving all the way forward to the healing of the leper. All that to say that this is a big section, and we're dropping into it to kind of capture the whole. What I want you to notice then is that Jesus has been out preaching and teaching. He went to the synagogue, and he taught. There a demon confronted him. He silenced the demon. He cast the demon out. He goes on. He comes home that afternoon after all that activity. He goes into Peter's house, presumably to get some food and to kind of rest after having been in the synagogue doing all the things he's done, only to find that Peter's mother-in-law is ill. He heals her. You see Jesus going about healing and preaching and teaching. And I can be honest with you, as a, as a preacher, I think about when I read this passage, I think about Jesus rising early in the morning. I'd much rather be staying up late to pray than rising early to pray. It's because of how I'm wired. But the thing is, is that Jesus was often up early and to bed late. And the idea we see here is one that Luther expressed when he said, Lord, I have so much to do today. I can't afford not to pray. See, what we see in Jesus here in part of his practice is the fact of the priority of prayer for Jesus. And here's where we might tap into that just a little bit. If the perfect Son of God, who is without sin at all, and in perfect communion with the Father, thought it necessary to get up early, go out to a place where he could not be disturbed and to lay out his heart before the Father, we might find that instructive for ourselves. We might find it so instructive that if we are neglecting to do that, it should be no obvious reality to us. It should be very aware to us that the reason why we're dealing with so much strife and struggle and weariness may be the fact that we haven't poured it out to the Father where we find strength and sustenance. Now, I say all that to you, not to go take away from this text, but only to say that it is instructive to us. Now I want us to look specifically at how this is playing out in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has been out. He's been out with all this activity. He has to be exhausted as a human being. There's just no way doing all the things he's been doing and going about that he's not 
at some point exhausted, but he gets up and he goes out to pray. And the question we might ask is, why? Well, the reason why he gets up to pray is because of the fact that he recognizes already that opposition is at hand. See, the demons crying out is is in real reality the fact of the kingdom of darkness opposing the kingdom of light. The king of light has stepped in, and already the demons have begun to speak out. Now, you might think, well, the demons are saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But do you understand that what they're doing, it's, 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 it's kind of this notion of not all publicity is good publicity. See, Jesus is very careful to only allow people to know who he is on his terms. He's not looking for cheap publicity. He's not just trying to get his name in the papers. He's trying to be very selective about how he is being perceived. Why? Part of it is because Messiah was a misconstrued idea all over the Jewish nation. People had all kinds of ideas about who the Messiah was, who he was supposed to be, what he was supposed to be like. And so we see Jesus as the Messiah King laying out very clearly who he is and how he operates and the way his kingdom is coming. And in the midst of that, we see Satan and his minions seeking to be disruptive, seeking to set that off course, seeking to oppose Jesus. The other reality that's going on here is is that Jesus knows he's going to be up against it because of what's just happened. You see, his disciples come looking for him, and what do they say? I mean, let me translate a little bit or maybe put it into the vernacular. What are you doing out here in the middle of these fields? You cast out this demon. The people are going crazy. This is our opportunity to strike while the iron's hot. And you're out here. What are you doing out here? Get back to Capernaum. The party's about to begin. We're about to crest into Messiahship and the kingdom of heaven is coming. Do you see the notion of what Jesus is up against? He's up against his own disciples who he himself has called who are going to get caught up in the hype of the moment. So, the question then is, maybe we should ask, what did Jesus pray? And here you might say, well, Dennis, don't draw inferences from this text. It doesn't tell you. But we do have plenty of prayers that Jesus prays. And we know what he prays. And we know the heart of his prayers. And I think it's helpful for us not to diminish that, but to say, what was Jesus out there in the field doing? Well, the first thing we know that Jesus did when he prayed was he began with a nomenclature. Father. And you might see that as not that big a deal, but I think it's imperative that we see the notion that Jesus prays Father. In fact, it's how he taught his disciples to pray. When you pray, pray, our Father who is or art in heaven, holy is your name. The reason why that's important for us to see is that here's Jesus as a human being, weary, exhausted, feeling the realities of this great miraculous event. And he goes out to once again identify who he is in the midst of all that. And you might think that's not a significant thing, but listen, men and women, 
When all the bustle and hustle is going on around us and things are, are going and activity is abounding, one of the things we all forget is who we are. Both when affliction strikes, but also when prosperity happens. There's a sense of needing to once again recenter ourselves and say, Who am I? Because that is an important question to know. Because it is a means by which I will operate, is who I am, what my identity is. And Jesus comes and once again prays and identifies himself as the Son of God. And by derivative application, don't you see that that's exactly how we come? Because He came. The Son of God came so that we might go and say, Our Father. We might actually be the sons of the living God because He came. And He shows the importance of being identified as the Son. Because see, how the Son will behave is very important as long as He remembers that He's a Son. His obedience, realize this, Jesus' obedience is imperative for our salvation. One slip up and the human race is done for. And Jesus comes and says, it is imperative for me as a man to remember, I am a child of the Most High God. I am a son. The second thing then that would happen is once you figure out who you are is a reorientation as to why am I here. See, part of it was Jesus remembering who he was, which then led him to once again remember and reflect on why am I here. Why was he here? Well, we, we get that from the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And do you see... That as Jesus begins to pray, He prays, Lord, Father, I connect with who I am and I submit myself again and again and again to Your will. We see that ultimately played out in Gethsemane, don't we? Where He cries out, Papa, Papa! Not my will, but Thy will be done. Jesus woke up early. Because he needed to remember who he was. And he needed to once again submit himself to what he was called to do. I think that's not all he prayed for, though. I think we get from John 17 in the high priestly prayer. Jesus is not unaware because we know that he knew it was in the heart of people. I bet he prayed for his disciples. We know that Jesus tells Peter, Satan has desired to sift you, but Peter, I have prayed for you. The notion here that we see as Jesus rises early to pray is a beautiful one that we recognize for ourselves. Christ sees himself as the Son. He sees himself as the one who has come to accomplish all that the Father delights in, and he prays for us knowing our frailties and our weaknesses. And it's imperative for us to see that this is Jesus' practice, not just now, but we know that Jesus prays for us, even now. 
It's also a sense that as we look at him, as we have one who understands what it's like to be tempted, even as we are. Because see, Jesus is praying not because everything's just all good. He's just doing this for perfunctory reasons. Jesus is under real temptation. Don't you see this? He's got a captive audience in Capernaum. All he needs to do is play the cards right and the crowds will mount and mount and mount until he has the whole nation at his feet ready to throw off the yoke of the Roman Empire and to set his people free. If you think that was not a real temptation, I don't think we're really dealing fairly with who Jesus was as a man. That was a real temptation. If it wasn't, Satan would never have laid it before him. I'll give you the nations. Jesus was faced continuously with the temptation to believe the hype and to just let it take its course rather than to stay the course he was called to and to do the Father's will, to serve and not to be served, to give himself as a ransom, a payment, for the penalty of sins. And so we see our Savior on His knees early in the morning praying. second thing I want us to look at then is the King's purpose. We see now that, as I've said before, that Simon and some of the others who were with him, presumably James and John and probably Andrew, since they were at Peter's house, where Peter and Andrew lived. And it says that they came out and, every, and said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I, might, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. One of the things I've already said, and I want to continue to say this, is Jesus had not come to planet Earth to be a miracle worker. He was not coming to say, look, I can heal people. I can cast out demons. I can feed thousands of people. I can do this. I can raise dead people. Those are incredible things. And we don't want to downplay them at all. But Jesus is letting us see something about His ministry, about His purpose that we need to see. What does He say? This is why I came. To go out and preach to different people. So we see here that Jesus is telling His disciples and laying out before us the reality that He is a man of the Word and He has come to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. That is His purpose. That's why He's here, to tell people the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The King is here. The King has come. Repent and believe. Now we're not left there because as we go on to the next verse, we see, and He went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now what we get there is this notion that Jesus has in his mindset word and deed ministry. Now I'm not making this up. This is what he's doing. He goes out, he preaches the word, and he shows as a manifestation of the reality of the kingdom deeds in keeping with the kingdom. Demons are cast out. People are healed. Lame walk. Blind see. Deaf hear. Dead are raised. That's not the defining mark of who He is, but it does show the reality of what He's saying. 
And Jesus lays out, and throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, we will see the reality that he preaches and teaches the coming of the kingdom, and he shows the reality of it in his actions. The kingdom has come. Repent and believe. Here's the reality. The kingdom has come. Repent and believe. Here's the reality. Now this becomes incredibly instructive for the church. Because see, we need to ask ourselves as we look at what Jesus is doing and as we claim to be His disciples and His followers, are we in keeping with the Savior's purpose and way? Because we have on the one hand churches that tend to swing all the way hard right and they, begin, they become churches that, that all they are about is people converting and being like they are. I'm not saying that's all wrong. But the whole tenor of the ministry becomes one of people need to believe, people need to believe, and they need to believe in this way and in this pattern and in this particular setting. And that tends to set them off on this spectrum. And on the other spectrum, you have, if we want to use that spectrum of right and left, we'll use it. To the left, we have churches that are all about deed ministry, right? They're always outdoing some good deed. As the Wizard of Oz would say, they're good deed doers. That's why they exist. The point, though, is, is that what Jesus says is, look, if you have the Word with no reality, it's vacuous. And if you have a demonstration of the reality without the power of the Word, it's vacuous. And this is why in both cases what you find is is that these two tendencies tend to revolve around the idea of being fundamentalistic rather than being gospel. Because this group over here is fundamentalistic about doing deeds for the poor. And if you don't see things the way we see it, you don't do it the way we do it, you're just dead wrong. And you have on the other end of the spectrum people who say, if you don't see it the way we see it and you don't do it the way we do it, you're just dead wrong. And don't put Jesus in the middle. Put Jesus as a completely different way. Jesus' way of ministering is saying the reality of the power of God never is without deeds. See, we just confessed it in Titus, right? The grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no to unrighteousness, to say no to unbelief, to say no to those things which enslave us and lead us away from Christ. But to make us what? People who are zealous for good deeds or good works. Not because they do anything for us in the sense of our salvation, but the reality of our salvation is demonstrated. See, that's why we tell people about Christ. Because we know what He's done. All we're doing is telling the truth. And why do we serve people and care for people and reach out to the poor and reach out to our neighbors who are hurting and reach out to members of our congregation who are weary and need to be encouraged and helped or rejoiced with because they've seen great things done? We need to be about the ministry of word and deed. We want to be people who are filled up to overflowing with the reality of the kingdom so that what we say and what we do 
are in concert with it. In that sense, we are seeing the reality of Jesus' ministry poured out through us because of all that He has been for us. He has been the one who has come and has ministered and has demonstrated the power of the kingdom. And that's what we see here. We see Him praying. We see His practice. We see His purpose. He's accomplishing it. He's doing what is necessary to lay out the kingdom of heaven. The reality is that Jesus does not heal everybody in Palestine. The reality is He doesn't raise every person that died. He doesn't heal every leper. He doesn't do that. When He does it, it always is a demonstration of the reality of the word He has spoken. The kingdom of God has come. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe. The other thing I want us to notice here about how Jesus is dealing with us is is that He ministers to both physical needs in order to minister to spiritual needs. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But the reality is, is that Jesus is coming to meet us holistically. And realize this, as the real Jesus, how that confronts those two those two poles, if you will, those two poles of, of extremes that you kind of see a gradation of. Meeting physical needs, meeting spiritual needs. The reality is, is if you're not filled, if you don't see the gospel being holistic in its approach to ministering to people, you've missed the point. Jesus cared for whole people, their well-being physically, as well as the greater need they had, which was for salvation and and forgiveness of sins. And we see him addressing that, and we need to realize that as we minister to people, that if we minister to people, if we say, well, I've really loved on this person, and I've really cared for them, and I've really reached out to them for years and years and years, but you've never brought some kind of conversation to a place where they're confronted with the reality of their greater need, which is a need of not just remedy from the results of sin, but remedy from sin. In other words, they need to hear that Christ has come to rid them, forgive them, cleanse them, purge them of sin and all its manifestations. Then you have not ministered to the whole person. In the same way, if you're standing there talking to someone who's starving to death and say, repent and believe, without at least giving them some bread so they can hear you over the growling of their stomach, you have not ministered to the whole person. Jesus ministers to whole people. And see how that comforts us. Do you see what that's telling us about how Jesus ministers to us? I've tried to press you to where that should lead us, only to draw it back and say, the reason why it presses us there, because we come back and we say, isn't that exactly what Jesus does to us? He meets us in our physical needs and He addresses our spiritual needs. That's what the real Jesus does. He draws us to Himself to see Him for who He really is. The last thing I want to look at then this morning is that Jesus cleanses a leper. And this becomes very important because it helps us to think about both Jesus' ministry and also how we think about ministry in, in, in our own time and place. The first thing I want us to look here is we see an amazing statement and an amazing action by this leper. Uh, it's really just, quite frankly, incredible. 
Remember that lepers, if you don't know this, lepers had to go about at this time and place screaming, unclean, unclean, unclean. They had to tear their clothes. There was no sense of them saying they were fashionable. I don't know what fashion would have been for a leper, but it would have been basically to look completely disheveled. They've been losing fingers and appendages, toes, maybe feet. They're walking around on stumps. They have stumps. They're all wrapped up. Their flesh is rotting on them. I mean, it's just a horrible existence. And they're cut off from their family and friends. The only time they could go to a synagogue is if the the synagogue had built a lattice separate place where they could stand and be away from all the rest of the people. They were completely alienated and separated. And so for this man to come and kneel before Jesus was to take a huge risk. A huge risk. Because literally, if this was found out, and we have no idea whether he came to Jesus and there was a crowd around him or he came to Jesus and it was just a few. The point to say here is is that he could have been stoned for what he had done and probably would have been had Jesus not acted. But notice what he says. Notice the heart attitude that he demonstrates. If you want to, you can make me well. There's something instructive about that for us. There's no doubt in his mind that Jesus has the ability to heal him. The real question is, does Jesus want to? And there's a real sense of submission and humility in this man's statement that is really, quite frankly, amazing given the pain and the suffering that he's endured over his life. I think if I was really, truly honest with myself, I'd be coming and saying, uh, you've got the power, do something now. And this leper says, If you want to, you could make me well. Now, another amazing thing about the incredible action that takes place is not just what the man does, but look at what Jesus does. Here we see the king's pity. Moved with pity, moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Now, we've seen in other, and we will see, but those of you who've read the gospel know Jesus can say, be healed. He can think, be healed. He can be walking away from you and his shadow falling you, be healed. Why does Jesus touch this man? See, we see something about Jesus in this passage that is really overwhelming. Here's this man who's praying, his purpose. But you see how he really ministers to this leper in a way that this leper has not been ministered to in years. He reaches out and he touches him. He says, you matter and I'm going to meet your felt need while I'm meeting your real need. He touches him and makes him clean. Now we need to see the reality of that because we need to understand that what we see in some sense here is the reality of as we come to the Lord, this is who we meet. Someone who reaches out and doesn't just in a sterile way say, okay, be forgiven. Now move on out. What we have is a Savior, a King, who extends Himself to touch us, to care for us, to speak to us, to acknowledge us, to tend to our hearts in the ways that we need tending to. This is the Jesus we're dealing with here. One who's not ashamed to be associated with sinners 
and lepers, with prostitutes and drunkards. That's the real Jesus. So we see His compassion. Now let's look at what happens here. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. That also could be translated a testimony to them. Jesus actually sends this man away, and what he wants him to do is to go and actually stand as a representative of a testimony. Because see, when the priest looked at this man and they saw that he was clean, they would have to deal with the fact of who had cleansed him. Which would mean what? They'd have to admit that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The priest would have to do it. So we already see that Jesus is basically saying, go along, see the law of Moses actually being, if you will, the conduit by which the kingdom is going to be announced. Because you're going to go and you're going to fulfill and do what the law of Moses requires you, but what it's actually going to do is it's going to be a testimony against them if they reject the king. Because they've seen the reality of the kingdom. But what does the man do? Well, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. I want to say two things to this. One, our disobedience cannot stop Jesus' ministry. And that's some good news. This man's disobedience did not stop Jesus' ministry. People keep coming out to Jesus. But it was a bother. It did, it did in some ways have an effect on what Jesus had been regularly doing, which was going into the synagogues and confronting demons. But it didn't stop his ministry. It also is instructive to us to know this. Jesus must have suspected something in this young man that made him give him such a stern warning. And the point I want us to say here is, is as we kind of derivatively look at this, what does this say to us about how we care for people? See, a tendency within evangelical circles is to say, well, we care for people who, who you know, are going to basically, we're going to care for them, we're going to minister to them, and then they're going to get their act together. What happens when they don't get their act together? What happens when they do confoundingly frustrating, irritating, annoying, aggravating things like exactly what you said, don't do that? What happens when you're discipling somebody or you're the pastor of a group of people or you're having to sit underneath the pastor of, of, of a particular church and they do aggravating, frustrating, annoying, irritating things? Do you see what Jesus is telling us and showing forth to us? We minister not because of the results of what we get or what that person does, but because of the reality of who Christ is and what He has done. See, Jesus was ministering out of the reality of who He was and what he was going to accomplish. And that is the same means by which we minister. Too often we are caught up in wanting to see the reality of people transformed right here, right now. And that's not to say that we shouldn't expect it. Because see, Jesus can say, 
I will be healed, be cleansed, rise and walk. He does it. He does it today. He did it back then. People's hearts are converted and transformed and changed. But we're also dealing with people who don't always get it all in one sitting. They're frustrating. We're frustrating. We're difficult. It's hard. And we have a Savior who says, I'm going to minister to you despite your irritating, frustrating, aggravating manner of doing things. Now see, don't you see the beauty of this? Let's conclude. Let's wrap this up. Don't you see the beauty of what we have? We have a Savior who rises early to pray for us. We have a Savior who continues, no matter what the circumstances are, to go towards the cross, not to take the easy way out, to head towards the cross. We have a Savior who says, I'm committed to you and I'm going to continue to help and heal and minister despite failure to do all that I've commanded you to do. And men and women, that's an amazing Savior. That's an incredible King. And that's the King that this passage calls us to bend the knee to today. And so, today, will you see the real Jesus? Will you be humbled by His presence? And will you heed His call? The time is now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.